Hi, this is Stacy, the Baby Maker Roberts, and I would love for you to join me in February, our seminar going from unexplained to pregnant. This seminar will help you assist more of your patients by providing you with practical, clinically proven advice on all aspects of unexplained fertility issues, and I can't wait to share it with you. I look forward to seeing you in February, and to register for this event, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the education tab. See you there. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me on the line today is Stacey Roberts, a former physiotherapist turned herbalist and naturopath. Stacey has been involved in healthcare since 1989 in both conventional and complementary medicine. Stacey's an internationally recognised natural fertility and women's health expert who has assisted people in over 32 countries with improving their overall health and well-being by addressing not just their physical, but also their physiological and psychological health with complementary products and services. Stacey is an international speaker and best-selling author, having authored or co-authored over seven books or, or e-books, and has regularly been featured on many TV shows, including A Current Affair, Sunrise, Win TV in Australia, but also being filmed by the Discovery Channel and even in appearing on Oprah. And if that's not enough of a CV, Stacey has also featured in such magazines as Vogue and Grazia, as well as numerous local and regional newspapers in Australia. Stacey took over Sharkey's Healing Centre in Narang in 2004, a clinic that has worked with couples to have created over 6,000 babies while on her program. Most were told it would never happen for them. To crown this off, Sharkey's Healing Centre, under the direction of Stacey, received the 2007 Stevie Award for the best overall company in Asia subcontinent Australia and New Zealand. Now you've got to be doing something right Stacey because of that not just that award but also your CV so I welcome you back to FX Medicine to talk today about male infertility. It's fantastic to be back Andrew thank you for having me. <laughs> now I've got to say you know like I'm, I'm super impressed with what you've done um, but also how you help people. It's not just about you know, a, a program, you personalise medicine for people's particularly, you know, particular presentations. Um, today, we're going to be talking about male infertility, as I said. And when most people think of infertility, they, they tend to think immediately of it being a women's issue. But this just isn't the case, right? That's correct. I mean, that, that idea of it only being a women's issue actually um, happened to me um, years ago. About 15 years ago, I was having difficulty um, having another child um, and was diagnosed with secondary infertility. Mm. Um, the doctors uh, basically just looked at my situation and couldn't find anything, so it was unexplained in my case. Um, and it wasn't until my husband at the time, actually three years later after the diagnosis, wow. thought maybe he should get tested. So, and it turned out there was a um, male factor fertility issue there that wasn't even suggested to be looked at even by the medical establishment. So it is definitely um, something that's an undertow that we just kind of assume yeah. that it's a woman's issue. And that, you know, I mean, that must place a surprising amount of guilt on women who already beat themselves up about pregnancy issues right through. I mean, that's incredible. That's correct. Yeah, most women feel completely disempowered and feel guilty for waiting too long or guilty for, you know, not finding the right person or uh, guilty for being the one that is, uh, you know, keeping them from having a child. And it's really just not the case. Up to 50% of people, of couples dealing with fertility issues um, uh, could be an issue with male or female fertility. So uh, about 20% of the uh, couples who are diagnosed as infertile would have an issue solely with male fertility. But really, it's, you know, it's something that both partners should be, um, uh, should be evaluated 
about and looked into in detail. So did you say 20% of infertility issues are really a male issue? It's only male issue, correct. I'm sorry, but that's staggering. Why isn't medicine looking at this as a as a normal part of screening? Well, I think it's becoming, you know, since since I experienced the issue, it's becoming much more prevalent to test the male in the situation. But many times, up to twenty to twenty five percent of couples dealing with fertility issues aren't even tested in regard to semen analysis. Now, is, is that the couple themselves yeah. or is that the um, you know physician not suggesting it? I would imagine it's a combination of both. Yeah. But I, it's definitely something that needs to be looked at. And as we'll get in today, even the testing for male fertility um, doesn't necessarily always uncover all the issues that there could be with male fertility. Mm. And that's why um, sometimes it goes unexplained. Um, or, uh, you know, there's a difficulty becoming pregnant with the assisted reproductive techniques as well. Well, let's go into those causes. What are the causes of infertility in males? Uh, they are, a lot of them are the same as what the causes are for infertility in uh, fertility issues. I, like, I don't like to use the word infertility, so I usually just call it fertility issues. Yeah. But uh, are the same as what, what females deal with. So hormone imbalances, issues with, you know, testosterone production, uh, you know, um, stress. But when we look at male fertility in particular, uh, also nutrient imbalances or, or nutrient deficiencies, things like that, poor diets, lifestyle factors. But when we look at male fertility in particular, uh, one of the things that stands out is environmental exposures seem to be more prevalent in uh, male fertility cases simply because of the um, careers, occupations, and jobs of these men. Um, oftentimes are, they're more exposed to chemicals than perhaps the typical job for females. So environmental factors, um, you know, such as exposure to um, heavy metals in mining in the mining industry, or um, uh, you know, different chemicals from jobs in manufacturing, um, carpenters, painters, plasterers, these fumes that they're breathing in, all can be endocrine disruptors and then impact their uh, ability to create uh, the sperm. Uh, and uh, the quality of the sperm often suffers as well. What about things like uh, sexually transmitted diseases and, and previous infections like mumps when they were children? Sure. There's certainly those issues that are also... Um, part of why we, why men are experiencing fertility issues, but honestly, in the clinic, those are a very few and far between in comparison to most things that are kind of what the medical establishment would say unexplained for male fertility issues. But when you look at the environment that the man's working in, there's a clear correlation between the amount of chemical exposure he's um, dealing with and the issues that he's having in regards to um, male fertility. I'll give you one example. Um, it was a couple that came to see me Again, for secondary fertility issues, the um, male um, was not tested. So when I suggested that get tested, he, he was happy to do so, but didn't think there was going to be a problem because um, they already had to have one child without an, an incident. Uh, they went to get tested and um, came up with he had zero sperm. So they were both shocked. And one comment from the doctor just kind of threw them both over the edge was the doctor said, well, you're probably born this way. So immediately what happened was the um, the uh, male partner thought that the, his wife had cheated on him and that the the child that they had was not his. So uh, that after paternity testing, certainly in fact proved that, proved that he was the father, they were wondering, you know, what the heck happened? How could he father a child and uh. all of a sudden not have any sperm? So we went back and looked at his timeline in regards to his job. And at first he was in a job where he wasn't supposed to sneak any particular um, high level of chemicals, but then he you know, started working in landscaping and where he was doing a lot of spraying and a lot of, uh, he was breathing in a lot of the, the fumes uh, from the chemicals in regards to his job. That happened approximately one year before his first child was conceived. So it didn't seem to impact the situation at that point. But now this was three or four years later after he'd been in that job for that period of time. And now he was no longer producing any sperm. In his situation, he was able to leave that job. Um, not all situations will allow that to happen, but in his situation, he was able to leave that job or chose to leave and work again. And it took about 18 months for us to be able to work together to um, help him be able to create sperm 
enough that they could uh, conceive again with their second child. Wow. So that's one example of, of how that, uh, an extreme example, because, you know, I haven't seen that very often, but again, it's one example of how that prolonged chemical exposure can impact male fertility. That's a happy ending to an atrocious start of a story. I've got to say. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I, I have to ask the question, and I don't think it's going to be a huge issue, issue in today's um, cultural society or fashion society, but certainly, uh, you know, back in the 70s when very tight jeans in males was uh, the in thing. Um, but what about excess heat, you know, particularly around the scrotal area and tight clothing? Do you still see those as an issue mainly in maybe older um, men seeking to be fathers? Not necessarily older men. And by the way, um, Andrew, I'm getting a visual of you in the tight skinny jeans <laughs> don't, or whatever you're don't. talking about. So I've got to, I've got to move away from that. I now. never it's, did. Uh, Focus on this. <laughs> um, in in regards to um, the age of the male who's, who's dealing with those issues in regards to heat, it really can vary and go right along the age spectrum. For example, a lot of studies are showing that I should say a lot. A few studies have shown that um, you know setting the laptop computer on a male uh, person's lap um, and the heating up of that computer plus the uh. position in which the male is sitting also increases the heat and has been heat in the testicle area and or the scrotum and um, has been correlated with decreased count in men. Wow. So um, there, and then hot tubs, the use of hot tubs has also been correlated with um, decreased motility in, in men. So um, that fortunately, and, and both things fortunately can be uh, reversed by keeping that area cool and avoiding things like hot tubs, especially, you know, a few weeks prior to um, timing of intercourse if you're trying to become pregnant. Yeah. And what about our typical modern-day society scourge, obesity? Oh, absolutely. And that's, again, one thing that also impacts female fertility significantly. So the inflammation, um, certainly, as we know, is, is a detriment to our health for so many reasons linked to chronic disease but it also can impact fertility without a doubt. Now, not all, all obese men will have issues with their sperm, but it, you know, if I lined up 10 obese men, one might have high blood pressure, one might have you know, other cardiovascular issues, one might develop cancer, and one might have fertility issues and on and on. So it's going to manifest itself differently in each person, but there's definitely a correlation with obese men uh, and overweight men who um, have issues with their um, sperm count or quality, and once uh, that is rectified, then we see an improvement in, in both of those in both yeah. of those parameters and even morphology as well. Um, so we've spoken about sperm counts and morphology. What about physical mm-hmm. things that cause infertility? And they're sort of, uh, you know, comorbid with things like obesity and the sequelae like cardiovascular disease. And that's things that like um, erectile dysfunction and low libido. Now, there's so many things that go into low libido that it's um, difficult to, you know, say, you know, to talk about here that you know, one thing causes that. Um, men with normal testosterone levels, for example, can have um, low libido. Mm. But erectile dysfunction, um, inability to maintain an erection, you know, that can be due to the arteriosclerosis in the arteries, you know, supplying the blood to the penis. So um, just as they could have issues with, uh, you know, the arteries supplying blood through and to, to, to the heart, and away from the heart, we have issues. We can have the same, or men can have the same issues um, with maintaining the erection. So again, you know, when we go back to what I mentioned about chronic disease and inflammation being related to so many chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease, it only makes sense that if those things are rectified, if the cause of those issues are addressed, then those issues can be improved upon. Now there are some men who have very low testosterone levels, which can be related to significant long-term adrenal stress that could be either from emotional stress, just working, 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 working themselves to the bone, uh, which I see a lot um, in the clinic is that, you know, they may have a job and then they're working a side job or they may have a job and then they're trying to renovate their house or they may have a a job and then they're trying to study full-time. This happens with both females and males. Um, All that stress can impact their cortisol levels, which in turn can um, impact their testosterone levels. And certainly thyroid, 
uh, plays a role in that too, and then um, impacts their fertility as well. And you know, when you're that busy, you oftentimes aren't paying attention to what you're eating very well, and you know, not as active as you should be. So all those things definitely contribute. And then the emotional aspect of dealing with fertility issues, just in general, um, can wear a couple down, and certainly can affect the male as well as as the female. So it can be a very stressful situation, especially when there's performance anxiety. Uh, when men are trying, or men and women are trying to do time intercourse at a certain time every month, she's looking at her watch. You know, he wants to watch the end of the footy game, <laughs> um, and you know there can be an issue with, hey, let's take ten minutes and, and get this over with instead of ten. Whoa. what you know, it, <laughs> instead of what intercourse should be between couples, uh, as you know, sharing that intimacy. Yeah. I actually had an interesting conversation with one of the um, one of my patients who was a very quiet guy. He was very reserved, kind of sat there with his arms folded for most of the appointment. And one time he just opened up because he was just so frustrated with, he said he felt like he was an animal at a circus yeah. and told when he had to perform. And he he actually felt that having intercourse with his, with his wife was, was the way he best expressed his emotional attachment or emotions towards her. And now it, that was taken away and he was really struggling with yeah. that yeah. Um, whole aspect of that as well. Yeah, I've heard that myself. I've heard of people saying, but you know, basically the, the male was told, hop on. Right, <laughs> and it was there was no intimacy, exactly. there was no romance. Um, what right. I find, or, I mean, if they're dealing with IBS as well, too, Andrew, they're you know what what do they what do they do? They show up and they give a sample and yep. out you go. So yep. it's you know it, it it impacts them both from a natural point of view and also with uh, conventional reproductive techniques as well. And, and I think it it it's a, a people need to realise that. Men aren't just these animals that, yep, sure, sex, I just need a place. I don't need a time. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that's true. Um, indeed, mm-hmm. a lot of couples that I've spoken to, it's the female libido that appears to be waning, certainly later on in life. Um, uh, let's let, When I say later on in life, let's say around, I'm talking about the reproductive years, so let's say around sort of mid to late 30s. Whereas the males mm-hmm. are all gung ho, so there seems to be this dystony between the male and female connection. Do you find that's a big issue? Do you feel that they need to go back um, and reconnect often? Oh, absolutely. And and we discuss this in the clinic a lot. And I think this is often overlooked and not discussed um, with the couple. And uh, when it is discussed, it kind of has has them both breathe a sigh of relief because yeah. they're both thinking it, but they're not necessarily yeah. telling each other how frustrated they are. So when you bring up the fact that, you know, she oftentimes will say to herself, um, well, what's the point? Why, if we know we, we, uh, if we can only have sex at these certain times, what's the point of having sex any other time? I really don't feel like it anyway. Mm. Um, and he's going, well, she's the only time she wants to have sex with me to make a baby. It can become a real big issue between them because they've lost that intimate connection. Mm. Um, cause you know, he, he, you know, extends maybe tries to become intimate, and she kind of pushes him away, going, "Oh no, you know, we'll do this next week when I'm ovulating," type of thing. So it can become a, a big issue, and she's trying to do the right thing to create a baby uh, and manage all the other things she's managing in her life, but not realizing she's pushing him away, mm. and he's not realizing how important it is to her that you know it, this has to happen at certain times in order for them to create a baby. So it's a lot of miscommunication and we talk about that and get it out on the table so that they can, you know, relate this to each other. And then we uh, work together to kind of figure out what's the best way for them to reconnect. Yeah. Because what I tell couples is they, you know, they can definitely, fertility issues can either bring them closer together and stronger as a couple or tear them apart. Yeah. So um, they have to make a decision which way they want to go with that. Getting back. Most of them are, are very open to discussing that once once it's brought up oh, yeah. and put out there. How very interesting. Getting back to the physical again, how mm-hmm. would you talk about, you know, symptomatology to discern erectile dysfunction that is physical in nature rather than emotional in nature? Are there any signs and symptoms like, for instance, morning erection or not? Sure. I mean, those things can be... Um, uh, things like morning erections can certainly be an, a sign or signal that there may or may not be issues. But really, it's about getting a detailed history 
and seeing where what fits, what what pieces of the puzzle fit together. For example, if you have a, a gentleman who is only having issues when uh, timing of intercourse around ovulation and every other time he um, it can be totally erupted either through masturbation or in other um, times of intercourse, mm-hmm. you know that it's clearly most likely an emotional issue. Yeah. If he's having difficulty maintaining an erection at other times or if there's been history of this beside, you know, outside of them trying to um, have a baby, um, certainly we look at more physiological things. Right. We also then look at there uh, and, and you can never really separate the two, can you? So mm. you look at both situations and you look at what they're doing in regards to their work history and and broaching the subject is often uncomfortable for for men because they're not used to talking to someone yeah. about it and sometimes yeah. talking to a woman, another woman a woman about it besides their wife is is even more embarrassing. So the building of rapport is extremely important with these guys so that they feel as though you're not trying to tell them that there's something wrong with them too. Um, you're just trying to help them both create what they want and allow them to become closer and allow them to just be healthier in general, you know, moving forward. So building rapport is, is a big issue because some men um, are resistant to looking at their situation, especially if they've been told that their semen analysis is fine. Mm. Um, whereas um, sometimes I'll look at a semen analysis and go, well, actually it isn't fine if you look at these parameters and the parameters that we see in our clinic where we see um, most pregnancies happening. So if you don't build that rapport, they're going to be a lot less receptive to any suggestions they make, or if they were basically dragged into the consultation. So I might, you know, I'll, you know, there's women who uh, I'll say to them, look, if your husband doesn't want to come to this consultation, do not make him Mm. because it'll be a waste of your money and and his time. And let's let you be the example of how well you're feeling. And if he doesn't, think that he has a fertility issue, um, then your example will at least help him want to feel better. And the changes that you're making and your eating and all those things hopefully will flow on to him. But um, male who, men who do have fertility issues range from being very embarrassed and not wanting to talk about it to be very intrigued and wanting to address it so that they can take care of it. Yeah. So it really is about building rapport and seeing who that person is sitting in front of you. For example, I might um, a, a kind of a sporty, competitive guy. I've I've said some a few times to them, um, you know, put tribulus in your formula. In this case, horrible. I'm I'm not sure that you can handle it. You know, and then they <laughs> kind of get all puffed up, and I'm like, I can handle that. Yeah. <laughs> and then then they're uh, compliant with their with the herbal formula. Whereas another man may be sitting in front of you, and you you notice that he is very caring and very sensitive and very supportive of his wife. So you may, you know, talk to him about him being doing this part of the program is going to be helps his wife as well um, get through this very difficult time. So you have to know the person sitting in front of you or get to know them. Yeah. So going back to that 20% of males of couples seeking infertility treatment, when would you suspect that it's a male issue as opposed to something to do with the ovum or ova? You know, any signs and symptoms that are key that you'd be looking for? And how do you then broach that with regards to the fragile male ego? You know, this burden of guilt or resentment on the male's part? Well, first of all, I never really look at any situation as only a female issue or only a male issue. And this is how I approach it with the couples. And whether it's, you know, the female only sitting in front of me or both of them sitting in front of me is that there needs to be a healthy egg and a healthy sperm and a healthy environment for that embryo to attach to. So uh, I always am trying to to move away from blame and really support the idea of a responsibility. So if you need a healthy egg and a healthy sperm, doesn't it make sense for both of you to work on? and try and get those cells as healthy as possible, just yep. like you want your heart cells to be healthier and cells to be healthy. So when you take it away from that personal fertility, you know, blame, it's your fault, or this is the issue, many times that, that they can relax and find it a lot easier to accept what you're saying so you can broach those subjects without um, them becoming defensive. Mm-hmm. Um in regards to how do I discern whether it's a male or fertility, a male or female fertility issue, in, at you know the initial consultation, it's, you know what what has the diagnostic 
prior to coming to CME. Um, even a woman with normal regular cycles can still have difficulty conceiving. Um, and a male who um, we've improved his sperm count uh, doesn't necessarily guarantee that that pregnancy is going to be created. So, again, it's it's more about it's a, it's not placing blame, but looking at responsibility for both of them. Now, that being said, if a woman's gone through IVF seven times and embryos aren't progressing and she keeps going through IVF because she thinks it's her fault, and nobody's been talking about how the sperm is so important in early embryonic development wow. and uh, the health of the fetus in general, yeah. then I'm going to be you know, bringing that up as well and saying, Look, you know, you've done this seven times and it hasn't worked, or however many times and it hasn't worked. Doesn't it make sense to bring in 50% of, of the situation and try to improve that as well? Yeah. Indeed, you know, like when we're talking about, you know, the male sperm development, um, how do you get males to adhere to dietary and lifestyle changes when a we're I'm going to say the word lazy, but that's not correct. Let's say distracted. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say distracted. But how do you get males to be compliant when we have that male bravado to overcome? Some males just won't be. And I think as a, as a therapist, as a practitioner, you really have to understand that. And some females won't be, although they tend to be more, more compliant um, because of the driving force for them you know, seeing. Uh, but some males won't be compliant. And what I find is that's a small percentage. Um, and the, the other um, men who are seeing me that where a fertility issue has been diagnosed um, may be uncomfortable at first and don't want to necessarily look at it, admit it, but they also want to get that monkey off their back and want to try to address it. Yeah. Now, yes, they also may not make the connection of the food that they're putting in their body. Um, it could be impacting or, or what they're eating and what they're exposed to even outside of the body, maybe impacting their situation. That's where rapport and education comes in and is so extremely important in every aspect of dealing with fertility issues, whether it's now female fertility or anything is to really, you know, break it down and just don't say, here's these herbs, you know, so we would say, here's this pill to get rid of your headache. We have to help them understand um, physiologically what we're trying to accomplish mm. and make that connection so that they get it, so that they understand why zinc is important. They understand why taking this probiotic is important. They understand why their herbal formula is going to be beneficial for them. If we just slide this stuff across the table and collect money from them, then, you know, Oftentimes, they're going to, if they're not pregnant, you know, or there's no change in, you know, a month or two, they're going to just say, you know, bugger this, it's not working. Yeah. And also, correlating their, their treatment with long-term health. One of the things that I say to my patients is, look, I can't guarantee that you're going to become pregnant. But what I can do is I can um, guarantee that if you follow these instructions and we work together as a team, the chances of you becoming pregnant are much higher. But the fact that what I can guarantee is that you'll be healthier in the long run. Yeah, that's so right. What do you have to lose to do this? To, so, and most people really get that. Yeah, to me, to me, that's kind of like a. Uh, I once asked a pilot um, of a commercial airline. Uh, I said, how do you cope with the stress of the worry about all of those passengers behind you and ensuring their safety? And he, somewhat callously, but I get his meaning, he said, I don't think about them at all. If I land the plane safely mm -hmm. for me, they're safe. And mm -hmm. it was kind of like, so, you know, if the husband and wife are, t uh, are healthy, then they're giving the best chance possible for a healthy fetus and, and baby to develop. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And then they know they've done everything they they can to work together towards um, this thing that they want so much. You know, this life that they long for is what I, what I say in some of my um, articles on my website. But, you know, men, um, sometimes you need a little bit of a, a little bit of help in that in the area of, you know, compliance. But with my book, The Fertility Bible, I oftentimes will um, discuss with the females to, you know, just earmark certain pages, you know, don't make them read the whole thing. Just earmark certain pages where it's relevant for male fertility and where you want them to read and set it out and, you know, ask them to read it, put it by the bedside yeah. to get where they're going to, where they're going to see it. Uh, and then 
expose them to it in that way, so in small doses. Now, it might seem like we're treating them like children or that we're you know, dancing around a, you know, a fragile male ego, but in at the end of the day, really who cares if it, if it, if it helps to manage things and it makes a difference uh, and it helps as a couple, I have to, why not? I have to giggle these days when my wife leaves me a page out of a magazine to read, you know, just conspicuously <laughs> left somewhere. And I just have to giggle, oh, I got another one to learn, have I? Another lesson. <laughs> <laughs> so, exactly. Without giving too much away, because people can learn all there is to learn with your Baby Maker program. But what sort of medicines, what sort of natural medicines do you use to treat male infertility? And how does your treatment fit into or differ from, um, you know, a standard approach? Um, you know, everyone's different. And we've talked about this in other podcasts too, that, you know, one protocol for male fertility is not going to be great for everyone who's dealing with male fertility issues. For example, you know, we talked earlier about mumps. Um, but undescended testicles is you know is an issue mm. uh, in some men who've had you know um, an issue with undescended testicles when they're younger and then the testicle brought down and they can have lower sperm counts. Oftentimes we don't we may not see an improvement in uh, quantity, but we could see an improvement in quality. So I wouldn't necessarily put them on the same protocol that someone who has you know low testosterone erectile dysfunction on. So you know as we talk about this, I just want to keep the listeners. Um, um, breast of the fact that they still have to look at each person individually yep. and come up with that formulation that's going to be best for them. But tribulus is oftentimes utilized for its, uh, especially Bulgarian tribulus, which um, yep. Terry Bone from uh, has talked about, you know, over and over in regards to uh, the research out there yep. about Bulgarian tribulus. Um, so it's important for us to remember to use the, the best quality product, and that's been great for helping to improve um, um, improve libido, improve testosterone levels, and in turn improve sperm counts in some men. Uh, the other thing that we have used with men who have um, low testosterone, and this should be looked at, is um, DIM um, and estrogen clearance, so that if the testosterone levels are being converted too quickly into um, the testosterone is being converted too quickly into estrogen, then that can cause a, a many, many issues with um, male health, including male fertility issues. Yeah. So helping the body convert um, or slow down that uh, aromatase activity uh, to maintain good, healthy testosterone levels is, is another thing that's really important. Yeah. The other thing to look at is, is gut health, especially if they don't have a very good um, eating plan or have had a long history of uh, antibiotic use. Um, uh, we want to make sure, or drinking lots of alcohol and have lots of sugar, we want to make sure that they're getting in, uh, addressing their eating plan for sure. That's That goes without saying, I would hope. But after addressing their eating plan, making sure they're on a good probiotic, that can help promote optimal gut function as mm. well. And then we look at, you know, if they have low testosterone, why do they? Is it because they're exposed to chemicals and this might be, you know, impacting thyroid function? Is it because it's adrenal stress? So adaptogens would be great for supporting the adrenals. And um, methania uh, would be great for supporting thyroid function. You have to check to see if they're iodine deficient, uh, to see if bladderac might be um, something or, or iodine supplementation. Vitamin D levels is really important as well. So, all these things are really important for, for you to look at. A good supplement, nutritional supplementation program, a good solid um, herbal tincture based on what, what you're seeing in front of you in, in regards to their history and their current state of health and blood test results, etc. And then obviously looking at their eating plan as well and, and minimizing any other exposure that they can control uh, to environmental issues like, you know, what they're putting on their body, mm. um, you know, in their house in their house or they're drinking filtered water. You know, things like that that minimize exposure in other places where they can control versus at work they may not be able to control exposure that they're that they're dealing with. Uh, I just wanted to reiterate for our listeners um, the point that you made about uh, tribulus. Uh, decades ago now, there was a product, the original Bulgarian product was called Tribostan. And uh, then it was compared to some other uh, tribulus terrestrial products from other regions. Uh, and they found mm -hmm. much lower levels of the protodiocin in these other 
tribus, uh, sorry, tribulus products. So then it was, uh, you you made the point about Kerry Bone. Kerry Bone made the point and he said, you've got to be using the stuff that's got good levels of the protodiacin. And the original one was tribustan. Um, I remember him talking about that years ago now. We tend to, I'm not saying to standardise to one supposed acting active ingredient, but this certainly seems to be a marker compound of importance. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, I do have men with low sperm counts whose testosterone is normal, you know, which in the early days of of, uh, specialising fertility, I was really surprised. I I thought that, you know, that would, that's the reason why all all sperm counts would be low or, you know, without a structural issue. But there are men who have normal um, testosterone levels, uh, free testosterone, total testosterone, that don't necessarily need to do this, but need that support for their adrenal need, uh, lifestyle. Yeah. Um, on um, and and gut issue, you know, um, gut support and, and all those types of things. Uh, fish oil again is a, uh, fish oil is a great support system for many health issues, but specifically to sperm morphology. There's been studies showing that fish oil has been correlated with improved sperm morphology in men. So the potentially the anti-inflammatory aspect of fish oil or the essential fatty acids uh, in the formation of the sperm um, could be supportive in that area. Stacey, moving on from treatment approach, how then do you measure success in males? Is it as simple as measuring, you know, sperm quality or motility, or do you look long term at just, you know, the end stage, which is pregnancy outcome? Well, one thing that I discuss with my patients as well is I get away from the idea of success because, um, and, and patients are inundated with, you know, success rates this, success rates that. Yeah. Um, and the reason I get away from the success is because if they don't succeed, you know, what's the alternative? Yeah. So over and over and over, they're considered themselves as a failure going through these fertility issues. So I always talk about creating a viable pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, the terminology that I use and, and I hope more people use that as well to, to take away that um, success failure kind of attitude that people have the achievement and failure um, attitude that people have going in it because it puts a lot of extra stress and pressure on the, on the couple. That being said, they've come to see me for fertility issues. They've come to see me to improve their chances of having a baby. So ultimately, that's where we want to, that's what we want to see. But that's, you know, doesn't happen usually overnight. So we have to set, you know, short little um, goals in between, little kind of milestones that we want to um, get to in order to improve the chances of creating this viable pregnancy. So we would look at, you know, improvements in sperm count and quality or morphology, depending on what the issue is that they came to see me or all three if, that, if they're having issues with all that. And we do testing uh, of their hormone levels, especially free testosterone, total testosterone, and others, steroid, adrenal, et cetera. And then we measure, we, we get those baselines and then we measure those, the progress of those th- throughout the three months that they're seeing me. And then at that three month mark, if they haven't been sick or ill, because that can impact the results, if they've needed antibiotics, that can in- impact their results. If they've, you know, gone out with the guys for a, a, a big blowout, um, that could eventually impact the results. So if in three months time, they've, they've been able to follow the program. Uh, sufficiently, then we would look at having another semen analysis to measure the um, the improvement. We want to make sure they go to the same place that they went previously because we do find that semen analysis from one lab mm-hmm. can be oftentimes not as accurate or very different from semen analysis from another lab. And we encourage them to utilize IVF clinics for their um, services in regards to comprehensive semen analysis. And even then, sometimes they're not as detailed as I would like. The other right. thing we also look at um, Andrew, is we also suggest that if they do go to an IVF clinic to have that comprehensive semen analysis done, that they also have a wash done, a wash or a prep, which means they basically spin the sperm and prepare it as if they were going to do a procedure. Yeah. So what this does is gives us an idea of how after that preparation and wash, how many sperm are left, and if the count significantly decreases um, from the, the fresh sample to the wash sample, then we oftentimes um, see that there's a quality issue. So in the semen analysis, we might ask them to do that as well. Right. So 
those are the, the parameters that we look at as and set as milestones. And this needs to be explained to the, the couple from the start, because if you just give them herbs or supplements and they go away and then three months time they do a test and it's no different or worse, and they don't have any idea why that would be, you know, they're clearly not going to come back and they're clearly not going to be on board that this is working. Yeah. So that's the way we, we can't handle it in the clinic to give them that approach that, okay, there's milestones that we need to hit. And if we're not hitting them, we need to evaluate and dig a little bit deeper and see what's going on so that we can hit those milestones and ultimately uh, um, help a couple create a viable pregnancy yeah, naturally that's... or with IVF. Without sort of painting a glossy picture that, you know, all is good and, and, you know, no failures are encountered, can you give us some examples of male infertility cases that you've treated and, you know, the sort of the progress that happened and, and their outcome? Sure. So we talked about a um, secondary infertility case that I had where the um, gentleman ended up having no sperm. Um, there was a Another case of azospermia where a gentleman who's a truck driver, he was um, uh, extremely obese, um, BMI above 30, and um, you know basically sat in a truck. He was a long-haul trucker. Yeah. And he also had um, – he had sperm, but they, none of them were alive. So in, in the Whoa. sperm ejaculate, they were all dead, although they were there. Um, so I guess technically that's not azospermia, but – Basically, he was producing sperm, but none of them were swimming or alive. Yep. So after going through our program, it took about 14, 16 months of working with him on you know, an optimal eating plan, a weight loss program, um, and also working on him with or working with him on keeping the scrolling area a little bit cooler, um, he was able to start producing sperm as well in that period of time. Now, again, that's not overnight, and that can be a long time for some patients to wait. But one thing I want to point out about him is he is very proactive in his treatment as well. So he's sitting in his, in his truck driving in you know, a long haul, and he developed this kind of uh, contraption where he used frozen peas um, to cool the scrotum area yeah. as he was driving because <laughs> you know, he was doing everything he possibly could to make sure that um, he was creating the right environment for those um little guys to be swimming um, as healthily he, as possible. He would have had an interesting look on his face from uh, from other drivers passing by. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I actually so remember Bob Buse talking about scrotal cooling sacks um, available. Mm -hmm. I think they were a Swedish invention. This is decades ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's actually a pair of uh, underwear now that um, uh, talk about that and, and um, have um, some substance that's over or something running through it that can also decrease the electromagnetic radiation from wow. devices to supposedly yeah. um, help with um, from count and quality. <laughs> One thing we didn't talk about, Andrew, that I wanted to just um, put in here now when I talk about cases is celiac disease. Yeah. Uh, it's not often thought of a lot, but it's I've seen it a few times in uh, male fertility cases hmm. where uh, there has been undiagnosed issues with gluten intolerance and once those were diagnosed and uh, gluten was avoided completely, we've seen sperm clumping through significantly. Now wow. we also have gluten sensitive, you know, people are gluten sensitive, which we recommend removing the gluten and uh, obviously making other dietary changes where we've seen improvement as well. Um, and it's not always uh, a gut issue that's going to point you to celiac. For example, one male who was you know, only 28 um, didn't have any gut issues, at least that, were, that I was able to get out of him or that he you know, talked about. Um, but because he had this kind of strange reaction and issue at work, he worked as a salesperson. And whenever he would get really, really stressed, uh, or it had to be extremely stressed, so it wasn't something that happened every day, but extremely stressed, he would pass out. So we had all these cardiac workups done and uh, everything came back normal. And they just said, look, you have to manage your stress. Wolf Parkinson, but I, I what? thought to myself, well, why not? Why don't we just check to see if you potentially have celiac? Um, and huh? his uh, celiac antibodies were elevated. And then um, he had the gastroscopy, which confirmed he had um, damage to the villi. So yeah, yeah. 
sometimes it's, it's things like that where you do have to be a bit of a detective to see what's yeah. going on um, in someone who otherwise would be healthy except for this kind of strange little and, um, incident that they and, had. And did both of these individuals have low iron? And the person with um, celiac disease did. Yeah. Yep. Um, the uh, gluten sensitivity, um, it varies. Um, many, obviously, as you know, many women with gluten sensitivity and or gluten intolerance would have low iron which is exacerbated by having a menstrual cycle mm. in a month. But men, um, I don't always see that or, you know, I don't see heaps of men with um, celiac disease, but in the few that I have seen, um, I know for, I do remember for sure that the one did have low iron. Stacy, what about this growing issue? Um, I, I recently glanced at a paper and I've got to say, I haven't read it, but it was uh, Association of the Methylene Tetrahydrofolate Reductase Gene, C677T polymorphism, with the risk of male infertility, Mm -hmm. a meta-analysis published in Renal Failure, 2015, November. The author is Zhu, Z-H-U, initial X. Mm -hmm. Um, Can -hmm. you talk to me about that issue? How big an issue is this of folate... um, Metabolism. You know, I don't think we know how big it is. I think if you look at every health issue, um, we could look at, and you know, again, chronic diseases, female fertility, miscarriage uh, issues. Um, we are finding now that the research is being done and accumulating to such a degree that these things are able to be correlated with things such as female fertility issues or male fertility issues. So I don't think we know what the prevalence is at this point. And the thing about that is, you know, we may all have these, these well, we do all have SNPs, you know, um, or issues with, you know, mutant um, genes, basically, that aren't, aren't working the way that they should. But not all of us have issues as a result of having those SNPs. Yeah. Um, now, certainly what we eat and what and how we're um, taking care of our life in regards to stress and supplementation, et cetera, gut health, all of that will, you know, um, allow these things to be expressed or not expressed, depending again on our genetic makeup. And I think the research is too early to really discern who is going to be okay with that SNP and who's going to be not okay with that. Yeah. Um, because I think there's more to it. But I, for especially especially with someone who is is as far as you know and as far as they say is doing everything that you're asking them to, which you know for me is uh, doing the supplementation program. Number one, doing you know, optimizing their eating plan, you know, decreasing their toxic exposure to whatever degree they can, exercising and managing their stress. They're doing all those things, and you really get a sense that they are on board with the program and things aren't improving. Um, then um, we certainly that certainly can be an issue that has not really been explored in, in depth. And I think it's really the wave of the future, epigenetics in general. I think is. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more to work out, though, first before we uh, um, think, you know, think that we can just treat people for a snip and then everything's going to be well. Exactly. And, I th- and that's the, the caution that I say to people out there is that patients have to fork out a lot of money for fertility anyway. So be, always be cognizant of what's going to be cost effective. And if you if they can improve their situation by you know, making dietary changes and utilizing, you know, herbal formula and you, you know, you're, you know, helping them, um, uh, choose the appropriate supplementation. Mm. Um, and that can help them become pregnant of hundreds of dollars worth of, of tests that they may not have. Um, you know, and some people will want all those tests, but some people just will not want to pay for them. Yeah. You have to be cognizant of what the patient wants and, um, not just, you know, Tell them to do five, six hundred dollars worth of testing, mm-hmm. um, which may or may not come out with information that is really re- relevant to them. So it's a, it's a, it's a balancing act, really, yeah. and also understanding what your patient wants. And along that lines of practical intervention versus testing, there was an interesting write-up of a of a paper, and this is in the Scientist magazine. Uh, the title is "Obesity Alters Sperm Epigenome." Uh, December 3rd, uh, yes. 2015, and they were talking about methylation issues. But what are you treat? You're talking mm-hmm. about treating the obesity. Um, so mm-hmm. it's really interesting, that one. Stacey, you've gone through a couple of caveats about, you know, being cautious about measuring success versus failure and putting the male into a negative mind. Um, 
about over-treatment of um, certain conditions like SNPs versus practical treatment of who's sitting in front of you and the couple, the couple there. What other caveats should prackies be aware of or forewarned of um, before treating infertility, especially in males? And that's a great question, Andrew, and I think it really is not just about how we're treating fertility, but how we're treating anyone that's coming to see us, is um, looking at this as a team approach and that you are a supportive member of their team. Mm. You're not trying to replace their physician, and sometimes they're angry with their physician because their physician has either uh, not told them something that you've, you know, you've uncovered or presented to them or their physician has told them it can't happen for them or their physician says maybe, you know, you have to have IVF and they just don't want to do that. So I would say another caveat would be to make sure that you're nurturing that relationship between the patient and the physician as well as your relationship with the physician, whether that's directly by speaking to them or indirectly by sending them a, you know, a note. Um, or indirectly through the patient by supporting them in regards to mm. their relationship with that physician. Because there can be a lot of animosity uh, in between them, but also there can be sometimes it's the, um, and this is not necessarily with someone who's diagnosed with male fertility issues, but for some for someone who you say, look, your morphology is actually lower than what is recommended, even from medical standard, and the doctor hasn't brought that up to you. The, the patient may um, just kind of brush that off because they said, the doctor said everything was fine. I ran into that many times. But the doctor said, I'm okay, so I don't, you know, I don't need to work on anything. Right. So, again, it's about establishing that rapport with the patient that you're not trying to replace the doctor. You're just trying to point out some things that may be helpful for them because whatever you were doing previously isn't working and you want whatever they do, whether it's a combination of uh, working with you and working with the physician. Uh, or just working with you, or even later just working with you, you want that to work. Mm. So you want to create the best environment for for that to work and no animosity, no matter what your personal beliefs are about um, IVF or uh, any assisted reproductive technique. Leave that outside the door because whatever your personal belief is may not be the same as the couple sitting in front of you, and that's you have to respect what they want and need for themselves. Hear, hear. Couldn't agree with you more. Well said. Stacey, there's so many other aspects that we need to explore. And for our listeners, uh, we'll be doing further podcasts with Stacey Roberts, um, otherwise known as the baby maker. Um, So I look forward to talking to you and delving into practical aspects of treating all of these other conditions that can impact on fertility. But the thing that I really love about you, Stace, is that you take a a technical thing and you take it back to that couple sitting in front of you who want a baby, and it's all about them. That's what I really appreciate about you. So thank you very much. No worries, Andrew. Thank you so much for your time. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. As the functional approach to medicine continues to evolve, we are now witnessing the emergence of a powerful systems-orientated model capable of addressing the healthcare needs of the 21st century. In April 2016, Bioceuticals will be holding the fourth Bioceuticals Research Symposium to provide healthcare professionals with leading, cutting-edge research highlighting the future of integrative and functional medicine. We've chosen the world's leading functional medicine experts to show you how they integrate the explosion of research with the latest in genetic science, nutrition, and metabolic medicine. For more information, please visit the Bioceuticals website at bioceuticals.com.au.